Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, the Fed hangover continues as the Dow drops again today, although closing off the session lows, down just over 100 points. One top strategist says it could be about to get worse. He will explain. Plus, we are all over the after-hours movers. Activision, Shake Shack, Gilead, all on the move after the earnings reports. We'll bring you the latest details from those conference calls happening right now. And speaking of earnings, just about 75% of the S&P 500 have now reported earnings. So take a look at some of the biggest winners and losers so far since reporting earnings Ford is up 10%, J.P. Morgan up 9%, Caterpillar is down 5%, Alphabet and Intel are both down double digits. So do any of these earnings busts turn into bargain buys? Do you stick with the winners here? Tim, what do you say? You know, I think a couple of them look very, very interesting. I think Google and Intel would be the places that I feel most comfortable based upon both valuation and companies that, that I, I, like, I don't think... I get worried about execution. Intel talked about things that if you worry about the things they talked about, you worry about it for everybody. They talked about data center. They talked about China. But again, their data-centric business is something in terms of earnings quality. People have wanted to see out of this company. I feel very good about the path they're on. The valuation is far um, from stretched relative to their peers in the chip space. Google, look, uh, paid clicks were down significantly. And if you think about the first quarter and year over year, so um, the, the, the comps were really, really tough. And at least the analysis says that some of this is just related to YouTube new products that were initiated last year, which made a big run to YouTube, made it very difficult to hit those numbers again. If you looked at the gross margin, there was a lot to be really excited about. Mm -hmm. So they only grew at 19% for a company that usually gives you 21, 22. uh, And they're also trading so far... relative cheap to the rest of their peer group. Um, I, you know, and I guess I mean Fang, and I guess I mean mega cap tech. This is the best bargain in the bunch, and I think Google Others and other bets is starting to get some, some real traction, some stuff there. You still like Google, but you're I concerned do. about the conference call. I actually, on uh, from all the, that was the worst conference call of the season, I think. Wow. Because I just felt like, okay, clearly people, uh, me, everyone who owns the stock, are, were concerned. Why? What happened with this revenue miss? Let's be a little more specific so we can understand. Is this a one-time thing? Is this, you know, what are we looking at here? And they really, I think, just did a very poor job addressing it. It was unclear to me whether they knew and didn't want to tell us or whether they weren't really sure what exactly was happening and and how long it would take to resolve. Would it be resolved? None of those questions were answered adequately. And also, I think that cash hoard is just a ridiculous capital structure to have. One of the biggest cash hoards on the planet, and yet they, they buy a minuscule amount of stock back. I think they could really learn a lot from Apple doing some sort of, ca- you know, I, you don't need to become a dividend payer, but you should have a reasonable buyback when you're generating that much cash and you do so little with it. Do you think and, all and that so, unknown created the sell-off that we saw, though? It I, ran up so much into it, though. It was having a huge month, you know, and Facebook had put up good earnings and Snap and Twitter, and, and, and so I assumed, actually, that they would as well. So it was really disappointing on a lot of fronts. However, I agree with Tim at this valuation, with this great business, even if it was not as good. They have too many levers to pull. So I would say Google and Intel. Intel is the same way that you grade people or grade companies on DRAM or NAND. Intel, for me, is data centers. So I think it's oversold based on data centers. It is oversold on RSI. Google, too many levers to pull 
for you to say, I don't want to buy this on a dip. Kudos to Guy Agdami, though. He flagged the 1150 level in, in Google, and it almost got there. I think it was 1158, but I think it's buyable right here. Those two are the standout names for me. So, so it's funny. you know. The question is, S&P is at all-time highs for all yeah. intents and purposes, NASDAQ also. And the question is, do you buy the winners or losers? And I think you really have to be careful of buying the losers here, okay? And I, and I think that you know we can differentiate. You guys are talking about two really high-quality companies. They both have very different prospects, and they had very different reasons why they sold off about 10% from those highs. But if you're saying to yourself, Okay, what do I buy here at all-time highs? I think we're in the sort of market you want to be discerning. You don't want to buy losers. That being said, it comes back to time horizon. And I think if you have a long time horizon in both Intel and Google, you're just going to be fine. You know, and Intel in particular, More I mean, two years you have one to be year. looking out to the back half of this year into okay. 2020. And Intel is really simple. The stock broke out in February. There was still a lot of enthusiasm. They had just had a beat. They just had a new CEO. They were doing some things on the strategic front. There's a lot of good announcements at a CES about, um, you, you know, some of the some of the initiatives they have. So the stock went from 50 to 60. So now it's back at 50. That's a level, 2.5% dividend yield, trading below a market multiple, trading below all of its peers, the balance sheet, you know, all that sort of, that's when you start thinking about how do I get the stock back up to 60? And your time horizon has to be at least six months for that to happen because it's not going to happen in the next few but weeks. But don't, don't you month. need to turn in semis overall to get a turn in it? No? You, you, listen, you know, there's so much outperformance in some of these other areas that we know, and it's going to take a stock like NVIDIA a very long time to get back up to its highs. You know, AMD seems to be a slightly special, special situation. I just think that Intel is the sort of name that has a lot of valuation support. They have a lot of flexibility with that balance sheet. We know they buy back billions of dollars of stock. So the opposite of what you said is cat year. tractor. So you, you look at Caterpillar. For me, it was something I never really get excited about this. This is a trade war. This is a global growth story when you start talking about what level levers can you pull. But when they increase their dividend by 20%, when they pound the table on guidance, when they promise stronger profit margins, it kind of gets my attention. Why are they being so verbose about profitability? So I think this one's worth a look. I, I would actually be a, a worth a nibble on buying Caterpillar, which Usually, they don't get me to pull into a stock like Caterpillar. I'm surprised that you would say that, given your belief that the China trade deal Biggest would sell be the news a sell-the-news event. Wouldn't that be the yeah. same for a Caterpillar? I, I, 100%. And I think when I look at the stock, it's had a little bit of a sell-the-news event already. It's a year-to-date. It's only up 6%. So I don't find it to be overwhelmingly boosted going in there. I see. I think it's sort of flatlining at this point. Well, you know, I, I, it's funny because I probably fit the same inconsistency on the opposite side. I'm generally you know, of the view that the deal, the China deal still could be something positive. I think global cyclicality may return somewhat. Um, I get a little worried about Caterpillar because uh, I, I just think that the, the structure of their core business is a little bit different than it was 10 years ago during the super cycle. So I think the old relative valuation metrics don't mean all that. 14 times 2020 earnings puts us at $175 stock, and, and that looks pretty darn attractive. But I'm just not sure you should put it at that multiple. I, I, I think, you know, you look at these, some of these names on EV EBITDA, I think they should probably be trading in, in kind of mid-single digits. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, Caterpillar's not a name I need to go out there and buy uh, in this environment. When you say structure of the core business, what, what do you mean? Well, I think, first of all, what we've seen in the mining industry, what we've seen in, in some of the ag businesses, um, you know, you're just not seeing the same kind of capex. You're just not seeing the same kind of global growth. Uh, and maybe you get the global growth, but it's not growth at all costs. I think uh, the miners are actually being a lot more discerning about how they attack new capex. You know, we're jumping all over the place, and I'm going to talk about your like a, a derivative of your Google for a second. You know, Snap was a big loser in this cycle, too. I think it was down about 10% in a couple days after its report. Now, granted, the stock is still up 100% of the year. But when you think about what you were just talking about, Google, and some of the reasons why they might have had that revenue miss and some of the, you know, just kind of the chinks in the armor as far as um, some of those metrics, 
Um, and then you think about what, what Facebook just said at this F8 concert, this developers company. I say to myself, this is a very unique property. That, yeah, they're not growing revenues like to the scale like Amazon right now is Facebook catching a lot of. This, this is Snap. This is Snap. This okay. is Snap. Okay. So Facebook Are we is valid. A bullish Snap call. Yeah, <laughs> Facebook. I'm just Facebook is validating <laughs> their business model. Google is starting to see Amazon and some others kind of take some share from them Ads. as far as. Uh-huh. So I say to myself, this is a pretty unique property, and I, you know, yeah, it's up 100, percent but it looks kind of interesting at 11 bucks. Can we go? Can we talk? Can we segue into J.P. Morgan at this point? Because that's probably where Karen where would like to jump design? in. <laughs> I mean, this is where this is, a really this is kind of go. Yeah, going darts here. So, so J.P. Morgan. First of all, financials as a whole, I think they are. And this is the best that financials are going to get. When you look back, so let's talk XLF. Let's bring it from fifty thousand feet up down. What do you mean the best? Like the highs so are in. The highs are in. Now, granted, J.P. Morgan had a great quarter, a record quarter. But when I look at the XLF, the XLF is back to, I know we always talk about this, that it's not apples to apples, but when you look at the XLF, back to 07, pre-crisis, that's where we topped out, almost down to the penny on the XLF. I feel like something's getting priced in here. I feel like this is as good as the story is going to get. Tax, lower taxes, deregulation. I don't think you should be diving into financials at this point. The thing is, I mean, the story's not that good in terms of a market perspective. Yeah, they've out, and by the way, they've outperformed the S&P over the last three or four weeks. Since rates bottomed, financials have outperformed the S&P by about 5%. But it's not like this has been such a fantastic run for financials that we should say, uh, exhale, let me, let me get out of this trade. You have to get back to money center banks that are trading at trough multiples. They're trading at nine and a half times. Um, historically, they're ten and a half times. They're basically trading at a recession in multiple. And I realize people are bummed about the Fed, think they should be cut rates. We're going into a recession. That's the only reason why you should be jumping out of financials, because otherwise the valuations, the capital return approach, the balance sheets, uh, and again, what they're not getting in net interest margins, they're being compensated by a credit cycle, which has got another gear to it. And that's very good for them. Karen. I love JP. <laughs> I was waiting no, for that. I mean, I, I, it wasn't shocking to me that they reported good numbers, just for what Tim's saying. We know there's net interest margin pressure. That has been around for a couple of years now. They've been able to navigate it, as have some of the others. It is the most expensive of the money setter banks that I, you know, between Citi and JP Morgan and Bank of America, but it is the premier name. It's really just gotten back to where it was. It was yeah. a great month. Right. That was great. <laughs> that day, that day that rates, I don't know, March 27th or 8th, that was absolutely the day to buy it. I think we may have had a discussion that day, Dan, about it. Do you recall? Listen, yeah. you're always right, Karen. <laughs> Sounds like you did. Uh, <laughs> okay. No, I, um, so I, I still own it here. I own Citibank here. I actually think there's maybe a little more upside in Citibank for the reasons you've said. It is the cheapest of the group. By a lot. It's also up the most, though. It's up 35% compared it to it's almost double last. what J.P. Morgan is. But like, it, it was down the most last year. I mean, I look, I've had them for a long time, but I also you think know what, You know what is interesting to me, though, is that you see the regionals, KRE, the, the regional banking index, that usually outperforms the XLF. And, they, and everyone always says that's because there's an M&A factor in that, that there's always a, maybe a, a 300 basis point premium to it. They're both dead even right now. So I, I don't know whether the KRE should be moving higher or the XLF should be moving lower. I would say it's the latter, not the former. So I would say that the KRE is probably where it should be and the XLF should be sold. All right. Our next guest says there are three earnings winners you want to stick with. Todd Gordon of TradingAnalysis.com is over at the Plasma to take us off the charts. Todd, what are you looking at? Hey, Melissa, uh, first, before we jump into those three names, let's just take a look at the S&P. Uh, something I find really interesting, really compelling uh, for this market. The indicator below the S&P here is the average true range. But what we've done is normalize it and made it the 
50% average true range. So what kind of swings is the S&P seeing week over week? And to start the story here, this low reading right here, if you went back even to the monthly chart, this percent change, realize month over month, week over week was the lowest in a century if you look at the Dow. We're coming off extremely low readings in terms of volatility. We're starting to see it move up. Um, we got up to about 2.6, 2.8% per week. Realize percent change high to high. What does that mean? If you go back and look at 2010 and 11, you were trading 4, 4.5% week over week. I think the volatility that we've seen will continue. So as I segment into the next, you really want to be a stock picker in the market. Before we flip off this chart, you're seeing a, a, a series of higher highs and lower lows in the S&P, expanding volatility. I do think we have short-term strength up to 31, 32, 3300, but then if this pattern, which is a technical pattern, holds, we might have a retest of a lower low, then we go. So I, I'd say just be careful. If volatility is going to continue to expand, that's what I'm looking at. So that being said, uh, first one, JP Morgan, really nice conversation. I, I added JP to my portfolio. I like yield starting to, to bottom, starting to move up here a little bit. JP does not have resistance if we source from the 2011 trend channel until about 135. That's where resistance comes in. So it looks like there's a little bit more room to go. Um, next one is going to be Netflix. I don't own this. I'm waiting for Netflix to kind of give us the go-ahead through this 380, a beautiful inverse head and shoulders. If we can get enough momentum following that decent earnings report to get up, I think Netflix is finally going to get that four-handle back. Um, I look to add Netflix. The last one I just added, I have it in my stock portfolio. I also have it in the options market. A really nice Elliott Wave pattern. Wave one, set back in two, beautiful breakout in three, kind of consolidation here, and it looks like we should have another push-up in wave five after that really strong report in Twitter. So I like Twitter as well. You know, Todd, is the first chart that you had on the S&P 500, I like how you nonchalantly say the S&P 500 could have upside to 31, 32, 3,300. I mean, <laughs> sure. it's, that's a pretty big spread right. on an S&P 500. So where do you see it going, and what's that downside? You said downside first and then a possible break to the upside. What's, what's the up and down here? What's the up and down? So, so are you looking for a time frame or, or more? No, the point spread. The point where we are right now. Okay, so so I mean, I think 3,000 is a foregone conclusion over the next 12 to 24 months. I do think we'll see that 32. But again, are you looking for downside target, Melissa? Or what's yeah, I want I want to see what the risk to the downside is versus the risk to the upside. So you the see 3,200. The pattern uh -huh. says, and this is not me saying we're going here. The pattern indicates that we will test 23 to 2,400 when we get the next hmm. downlink. I don't think this is a top. I'm not calling the end of a 10-year bull market, but the pattern holds that we should make a lower low below. 2300 so that points you to 21 2200 at that point once everybody capitulates that's when i think we mount and make uh, a final a final push to new highs at which point then there's going to be problems that's where i'm playing it for right or wrong right it's my game plan uh we shall see it's quite a call todd thank mm -hmm. you todd gordon tradinganalysis.com steve i know you like charts i, I do like charts, charts. And, and the problem is Can you sneak up to 3300 <laughs> I don't know if I can sneak up there. I, I do agree with them that we should, in theory, test those levels. But the problem, problem is I saw the bounce I, I, uh, on a chart. I saw the reason why we should bounce 10% off the December lows. 
I don't, I didn't see the bounce lasting longer than 10%. So I have to factor in, I thought we we're going to recheck those lows of 2350. I have to factor in now how aggressive we have been to the upside to maybe it's a 2550 check, not a check all the way back to 23. You know, Todd said something interesting. He's like, I don't want to call the end of a 10-year bull market. You know, it's interesting. He said that, that when it does go back to 2350, it will be, the, you know, retest this or possibly make a new lower low. We had that in 2000, <clears throat> excuse me, in 15 and 16. You know, we had a new lower low. It was one of the first of the entire bull market. And look where we are. I think we broke out at 2,000, and now we're touching at 3,000. So to me, the S&P could easily go up or down 400 points. That you know, The probability is, uh, I think, greater to the downside at this point. Though. That's a pretty frightening market. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> we're going to easily go up or down 400 points on the S&P. There'll be a lot of specialists. What, you tell, me what, yeah. tell me what the Fed's going to do, and I'll tell you, you know, where we're going to be in the next six months, because that's all this is right now. All right. Still ahead, stocks under pressure the last two days after hitting fresh record highs, and one top strategist says there is more pain ahead. He will be here to explain, plus talk about a sizzling IPO, Beyond Meat, doubling in its debut on Wall Street. But what's the new stock really worth? The traders will break it down. And as the IPO parade continues next week for Uber, but the company could be hitting a major valuation roadblock, we've got a special report. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Beyond Meat topping the tape today after jumping more than 160%, making it the best IPO debut of 2019. And check out how the popular meat alternative stacks up to some of its food peers. Hormel, General Mills, Conagra, Kellogg, all trading at less than three times price of sales multiple, while Beyond Meat's trading at a whopping 43 times. While the markets didn't think so today, is the stock overvalued? And we were having this conversation in the green room, Karen, about real comps, and maybe these aren't the comps because these are just food staple food, stocks right. and, and maybe we should think more broadly about consumer companies and, and what would be more comparable to them. Consumer companies, but also just an IPO that, that sort of sparks something. But on the consumer companies one, I mean, remember GoPro, right? GoPro went public at $24 a share, I think it was. It traded up to 90 mm-hmm. Where is it now? I mean, you know, there's a number of those. So there's GoPro. Shake Shack, which actually put up good earnings tonight. Right. Also, they came, the stock went berserk. It ended up going also, I think, near 90 maybe. Um, and now it's actually getting close again. But there's this euphoria that, I, and I believe actually in this space, I think it's going to be alternative though. meat space. I do. I believe in vegan and vegetarianism and how that we're, we're going to see changing food. Meat disruption. Meat disruption. Meat yes. Disruption. I was actually looking at corn today. I wonder, I don't know, does beef eat corn? As, I don't know, but is that going to be a pressure on them? But this this is kind of like uh, it beyond Baffling. gravity. It is Baffling. beyond fundamentals. It's beyond, beyond, it's beyond me, it's beyond. I, I mean, good Seems for them. Seems too fatty, though. It just, <laughs> no, no, not fatty. Oh, fatty. fatty. Well, it does have 20 fatty. grams of fat. I mean, we did go through the numbers huge. last right. night. And, this, and you yeah. covered it. It, it. it has five times the amount of sodium. People worried about heart risk when it comes to eating meat products, but yet you have the same thing. 
What? Has no cholesterol. Yeah, but there's a whole bunch of things that I think are going to get in the way of it being a healthy food. But I agree. There are people that just will not eat meat. By the way, let me just say one more thing, though. How is it that they're on the road show? They're thinking of, I don't know, whatever, 16, 18, whatever it is. Then they decide, no, no, it's going to be a little bit higher, a little bit higher. And this ends up happening. I mean, that's astounding to me. I don't man. It's, it's a small deal. I mean, we're seeing this in some of the smaller deals that, that have gone <clears throat> since the, the Lyft IPO. They're just, they're, it's a sl- supply demand. They're just squeezing higher, right? And so, I, you know, I don't know about this one. Um, I will say this, though, that, you know, you have a situation where the comps, you know, you said fatty, and I think it's important. Some of us have been around a little. We remember Krispy Kreme. We remember mm-hmm. some of these other things. Um, they come and go, right? Um, it's just the hot thing There's right no now. There's here. What's I mean, that? What stops someone else from getting into this same well, burger space? Well, there are a space. lot of competitors. There's Impossible right now. There's another one, but joint venture, Cargill, Correct. Tyson, which is cultured meats, meat. So why a premium valuation? Right. This, dishes. this is a function of free money, right. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. This is what happens when money so, falls from the sky. So you're all thumbs down on this I one. I wouldn't touch it. Although we loved it last night. I think four, the three A's, right? we grade, we grade, we all on ate the, our burgers. I think the, the fact that, I think we're that Dan touched on that it's a small deal, I think that that can keep it above water for a certain amount of time, but I think ultimately it's a sell. I'd be in Shake Shack over this. Okay. But yeah. Just some valuation. Speaking of valuation, Wall Street also struggling to put a number on Uber ahead of its own IPO debut next week. Leslie Picker joins us here with all the details. Leslie, what's the latest? Hey, Melissa. So Uber is seeking a valuation between 80 and $91 billion in the range it's currently marketing. But some investors are having a hard time deciding whether that's actually a fair price. We're seeing a split in the analyst and investor community between the fundamentalists and the believers. Investors who are focused on the <coughs> fundamentals are struggling they say the 400-page S1 is lacking in details that they need to model out an expected valuation. Take, for example, this chart on page 114 of the prospectus. In many ways, this is the closest an investor will get in terms of economics on a per-ride basis. You can see the trend line for gross bookings has stabilized around, say, $9 per trip, while the number of trips has been climbing. But there are no clear numbers, at least on a quarterly basis, to plunk into a spreadsheet. Now, with operating losses tracking about $4 billion this year, investors are trying to wrap their heads around the profit and loss dynamics of Uber's myriad of businesses and how that mix changes across the world. Susquehanna wrote in a note, Financial complexity, limited disclosures on KPIs, key performance and indicators for the core business, and difficulty in finding comparables likely to affect valuation. But there are also the believers. Wedbush already initiated Uber with an outperform at a price target of $65 a share, 30% upside from the high end of the range Uber has been marketing. Wedbush calls Uber, quote, one of the most transformational companies in the world as the company has single-handedly changed the nature of transportation worldwide. Wedbush even raises the question whether Uber is going to be the next tech giant to join the Fong, F-A-A-U-N-G, Fong Club, Melissa. It doesn't have a good ring to it. Thank you. New acronym. Whitebush is saying that that price target was the base case scenario and they can see a lot of upside. But you buy this. There's an argument, you know, amongst the bulls that's being put forth that all these other businesses, transportation, Uber Eats, that that helps them leverage their network, their platform. And I don't really understand that argument because they don't own necessarily that platform. They own only the software which connects the cars to the person who needs the cars or the cars as transportation for either food or for themselves. Um, But 
their drivers don't work for them. They don't own right. the cars. They don't own this network. It feels like they have a fixed infrastructure because you see that they have, you know, such uh, scale in terms of ride sharing. Uh, but I've spoken with sources who have looked at this fixed infrastructure and to see how it can really translate into Uber Eats. And you hear a lot of complaints with drivers who don't want to, you know, carry around smelly food. They see themselves being above a delivery guy and that they see themselves almost as a chauffeur, which they believe to be in a different class. Um, They don't have the ability sometimes in big urban markets to park their car and deliver the food. So the scalability of just transforming one workforce into another um, isn't quite panning out as easily as it may appear just by kind of looking at their business models and seeing that they have this kind of ready and willing group of drivers. Is it transformational uh, transportation, like all the railroads went bust, right? Ultimately, all of the airlines as, a, as an industry have not made money. All the automakers. So that something is transformational Doesn't is unrelated right, to making money. Right. Especially in the case of a company like Uber that had an insatiable appetite for capital. In other words, they've raised more money going into this than any other company coming to market. And it's clear, if you look at some of the deals, the deal they did with SoftBank and the deal they did with um, a couple of the other guys, they did a deal at SoftBank at $48 million about a year and 15 months ago. Just because I think they needed a big slug of cash. They raised a billion dollars. So that's important. They're going to burn money. Leslie, thank you. Mm-hmm. Leslie Picker. For Ron Uber and its expected debut next week, head on over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Tesla. 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 After a rough start to the year, the electric car maker is recharging its battery with a $2 billion capital raise. But is it enough to save the stock? We'll explain. Plus, let's get high on our own supply. Let's not, Andy. But as marijuana tries to go mainstream, just how hot could pot stocks get? We've got those details. Much more Fast Money after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Markets nursing a bit of a Fed hangover with the Dow dropping nearly 300 points in the last two days since Fed Chair Powell spooked stocks with one word, transient. Bob Pisani is at the NYSE to break it down. Bob. It's not just Powell. So we've had a few headwinds battering the market over the last couple of days. So you saw crude oil today. It sold off. It was 65, ends at around 61. And you can see the S&P moved almost in tandem with, with oil today. That doesn't happen that often, but there's bigger issues out there. We have moved 40 points in the S&P in the prior eight days or so to new record highs on Tuesday or so. So a lot has to go right for the markets to keep going up like this. Stocks are hitting resistance and you know what? It's about time. 
Stocks are pricey. Forward earnings multiples over 17 now. That's well over the historic norm of 15 to 16. The markets essentially now want to try to shift the discussion on several important issues. Number one is the Fed and central banks. You mentioned that, Melissa. Fed Chair Jay Powell's dashed hopes for any kind of rate cut now. And this patience mantra, it's wearing thin with the markets. Only China is in an aggressive stimulus mode, the central bank there, I mean. Markets want other central banks to get back in to the stimulus mode, including the Fed. Then there's trade talks. Even vague rumors today that there was not sufficient progress caused a little bit of a midday trading blip. And for the last month, the markets have risen because global growth sentiment has improved. We keep saying there's a belief China and Europe is bottoming. But now we need more than just sentiment. We need to see a few months of hard economic data to show those recoveries over there are actually real. Finally, no earnings recession. That may not be enough with stocks this pricey. We've avoided an earnings recession. That's great. But we have now have likely several quarters of flat earnings. That may not cut it either. We need low single-digit gains in the second and the third quarter, high single-digit gains in the fourth quarter. Melissa, earnings growth for 2020, it's already about 12%. So you see what I mean? The market's expecting a lot to go right to get things moving again. Back to you. All right, Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani at the NYSC. It may be more than a hangover hitting the market. Our next guest thinks the global growth scare is coming and investors are too optimistic at record highs. Let's bring in Michael Kantrowitz from Cornerstone Macro for his Fast Money debut. Welcome to you, Michael. Hi, thank and you, you work with uh, Carter, Absolutely. who's on here, who's, who's quite bearish. You just sit around and talk <laughs> around bearish, 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 bearish club. Just make everyone uh, <laughs> want to push us out of the room. So, so what are you looking at right now? Because it... it I mean, I thought that the China data was coming in a little bit better. Europe, Europe was showing some signs of stabilization. What, what is the global growth scare that's coming, in sure. your view? Uh, well, we're concerned that we've had a Fed tightening cycle, and it's the first one since 2006. So we haven't had a tightening cycle post-08. And so a lot of things have changed around the world post-08 uh, that have uh, ended up differently in how we expected when you look back at the last 12 Fed tightening cycles since 1950, all of the bad news of the market and the economy happens after that last rate hike. So the market has gone up in the last four months because the Fed has backed off. If you go back the last 12 cycles, that is exactly what happens. PEs go up, bond yields go down, and investors are really excited the Fed's done. And maybe they cut. However, we, what we have seen in every cycle after the Fed has cut rates is things like the ISM index which is a great proxy of earnings growth ahead, goes below 50 into contraction territory. And yesterday's data point, one of the lowest readings in a couple of years, I think is, is uh, continuing to follow the path of what happens after a Fed tightening cycle. So how do you translate this into what the markets will do for the rest of this year and next year? Sure. So we've gone up because this excitement around the Fed going away. And it's all been, as Bob mentioned, all PE expansion. And... The number of companies now saying we're going to, be a sec- we're going to see a second half earnings growth, uh, a pickup, and that's what investors are banking on, and that China's been doing all the stimulus and expecting China to lift the world as it has done a couple times in the last 10 years, uh, we, we don't believe that's going to happen. And we're, we're, we're seeing a lack of monetary easing in China. They've done a lot of fiscal reform, tax cuts. That is going to lead to a different um, uh, recovery than we've seen in the past. And I think you're seeing that in metals and mining stocks. Copper prices have been flat for a few months now. Cyclical stocks have been very volatile. 
And so I think we're seeing just a lack of earnings expectations really improve from here. And I think that's going to continue. And that's ultimately going to catch up to the equity market. Do you think, though, that this recent move, Michael, um, it, it literally it just seems like from a sentiment standpoint, more towards an easing uh, rather than to another hike? Obviously, the last hike right. that you're talking about came in December. When we were at some point in Q3 or Q4 of 2018, we were expecting two to three hikes this year. The talk of a cut, what does that do to these expectations so contracted in this cycle, this rate sure. increase? Well, I, I think that's going to I think we will get a cut. If, if our stories plays out and we do see that PMI go below 50 uh, and the global PMI, which, which came out today, which has fallen for 12 consecutive months now, now, that's never happened in the history of the data going back about 30 years, I think the Fed ultimately will cut rates. And when you look at what, what drives the Fed to cut rates often, it's not inflation coming down, it's growth slowing. It's things like unemployment claims rising or PMIs going below 50 and ultimately the market having a, a pretty nasty correction. You look at rate cuts historically, they happen when core inflation is still pretty elevated. And so uh, I think it's going to take a lot to get the Fed to cut rates here and investors expecting that to happen and banking on that to happen while things stay, remain healthy, I think are going to be disappointed. Do you have a target for year end? Um, I, I think we're going to, as the back, we get to the back half of the year and investors that expect PMIs to recover and earnings expectations to recover, that falls short. I think the market can fall 10 to 15%. Uh, easily from here with cyclical seeing more downside. Our favorite market is still the S&P and actually still the, the, the NASDAQ because it's got the least cyclical exposure around any other market around the world. So a drop of 10 to 15 percent is actually better it, than what we'll see in some other markets? Yeah, I'd say that's for the S&P, right. for more cyclical emerging markets, for Europe, uh -huh. for small caps that have a lot more financials, industrials, energy, materials, right. globally economically sensitive groups. While they're low PE, low PE doesn't always mean low risk. Sure. And Michael, thank you so much. Michael Kantrowitz of Cornerstone Macro. Well, it's hard to argue with uh, the discussion of ISMs and where the Fed has typically uh, pushed the market essentially to a place that with that last hike uh, a little bit too far, which is maybe where we got. Um, you know, my view is that the, the, the things I would be watching in the short term, because, you know, it's one thing to, to talk about an Intel or a Google, be long-term stocks and talk about the fundamentals there. When I talk about markets, I, I try to think of the setups, and I try, I don't think I can tell you out past three months where the market's going to go, rather than tell you, I think the dollar is something to watch, and I think the Fed is something to watch. Uh, if the Fed actually starts to tell you that they are not as dovish as you think, even though everything Michael just said, uh, and I'm not buying the guest and bringing them back, is something that, that ultimately could have you, uh, you know, effectively seeing markets start to get, you know, somewhat ebullient. I, I, I think in the short term, markets do nothing. Uh -huh. I think the market, we've talked about this, how much uh, power or ammo the Fed needs if we enter into another recession. We've talked about whether it's 5%, whether it's 3%. They just don't have enough ammunition. They have the balance sheet they could play around with, but I think that would send a surrender sign to the overall markets that now they're going back the balance sheet. So I think ultimately this is a sell-off. Unfortunately, a lot of people who have been calling for a sell-off have been wrong on the timing. So eventually that 10 or 15 is coming. It's just a matter of it's very long in the tooth. We've been holding our breath for it. Check out shares of Activision Blizzard sinking off its earnings report. The gaming stocks have been lagging the market all year. Is it game over for the group? Plus, Tesla's dash for cash shares rallying today as it announces plans to raise $2 billion from investors, including CEO Elon Musk. Is the stock about to make a major U-turn? More mm. Fast Money still ahead.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Tesla getting a boost after the company announced plans for a big capital raise, seeking around $2.3 billion, including a $10 million investment, up to $10 million, from CEO Elon Musk in a bid to inject more cash into the business after burning through about $2 billion, $1.5 billion to be exact, in the first quarter. So will the cash infusion recharge Tesla's stock? I go to you, Tim, who's short. Are you still short? Yeah, I'm still short. Um, I, I, you know, look, first of all, very clear, this number is about matching the working cap deficit that we saw at the end of the first quarter. So there's no question this is bullish. In fact, the, the question I asked Kathy Wood from ARK Invest on, I don't know, Monday um, on the ETF Ed show, great show, by the way, um, was why isn't the company running to raise money? Because, you know, this to me is, is clearly a case where you're watching a restructuring happening before your eyes. So it's a company that also for almost 20 years has never been profitable and goes back to the well one more time. I think it's getting more and more difficult. I think this is absolutely what they had to do. Um, and the question is, you know, why only 2.3 billion? Why, why not 20? Seriously. I mean, I if this is 20, but I totally about three. agree. Okay. Yeah. Well, but this yeah. is, this is not enough here. Right. And, and if you're, if you're someone that's a, an equity issuer, going back to the market too soon is a big problem. Yeah, I think the drip drip would be really bad for them because it would only be happening when they need the money, right? Even though the stock's down a fair amount, it's still it's still got a pretty lofty valuation and they can still raise money and they should. So I, I agree. I don't know why they don't. I don't, I don't know why the reason. At least the stock one looks more like to me, it, it, if I go back around these levels, you can go back to the March 2017. There's a little stutter of support there. The problem is back then we were above all its moving averages. Now we're below all of its moving averages. So I do think that it's becoming more competitive going forward. I think that the end is probably near for Tesla. The I think, end is near I, I think, I think that all that these mean? bulletproof things where it had a run. You mean bankruptcy? I was, I was bullet. I, I, no, I'm not saying bankruptcy. I'm, I'm saying that the stock is just, it rallies on good news. It rallies on bad news or comes back from bad news. I could see this stock very easily below $200. I could see it around the 180, 190. And that's going to shake out a lot of money where you have a fiduciary responsibility to say, okay, what am I here for? Is it really a story that has legs anymore? Mm. All right, well, one options trader just bet nearly $3 million that the automakers do for a rally. Dan Nathan's over at the plaza with the action. Dan? Yeah, so today, Mel, uh, put volume was one and a half times that of calls. It was kind of an interesting day to kind of check out what was going on. This was kind of the long-awaited news. The stock has been really in a slow drip down to these kind of $240 levels here. But the trade that caught my eye was right after the opening. It was about an hour after the announcement that they were going to raise this capital. There was looks to be a short-term trader rolling out of some May 3rd weekly that expire tomorrow, 250 calls, and buying to open 6,000 of the May 10th. Next week, Friday, 250 calls. So that's kind of just giving this bullish bet, assuming that it's a bullish bet, some more time to play out. Again, this was kind of pretty well telegraphed. I think that a deal was coming. You got a little bit of a short squeeze um, today. At one point, that squeeze looked like it was about ready to fail. Um, Let's just go to the chart real quickly, those levels that Steve was talking about. Obviously, this has been a really tough level level to press on the short side, but it's kind of closed below there, and I think it really does have to get back above 250. That's why you're going to continue to see a lot of options activity around that 250 strike. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. For more options action, check out the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Activision Blizzard sinking off its earnings report. That stock off uh, more than 40% from its 52-week high. We will bring you the very latest from the quarter. Plus, marijuana is becoming more mainstream as the industry tries to take the stink out of the pot per se. So where is the next hot spot for legalization? Find out when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Activision Blizzard, the video game maker, sinking in the after-hour session. Let's get to Josh Lipton in San Francisco with the details. Josh. So, Melissa, one interesting trend in this industry, you know the big tech giants, uh, Google, Microsoft, reportedly Amazon, launching these new video game streaming services so you can stream big, complex games uh, right to your phone. No expensive PC or console needed. Activision CEO Bobby Kotick making it clear on the call that those companies are going to need his content to succeed. Take a listen. None of these platforms can succeed without great content. And they, truthfully, they don't really know how to make it. So when you think about what will be required, it will be support from us to in, allow them to actually build audience. And I think that uh, we have a better opportunity than most to capitalize on all these new platforms. Uh, now, in terms of why the stock's down here, Melissa, I checked in real quickly with uh, Michael Pactor of Wedbush. He says, listen, it's pretty simple. Uh, the Q1 you had a beat, but no pass-through here to Q2 or the full year where guidance undershot expectations. Uh, Pactor's saying it would have been helpful maybe to hear when all this content they're talking about in their pipeline is actually going to be coming in 2020. Maybe some more color on the launch dates. We didn't get that. Also, they couldn't say when Chinese approval of their new mobile, mobile video games is coming either. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh. Thank you. Josh Lipton in San Francisco. So this is a problem for the industry. So software sales have been down. They're down 15 percent. Hardware hardware is down 50 percent. Software is down 11 percent. So I believe what what Bobby had just said there. I think that the Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons are going to need them. So there could be this M&A activity that you believe in the space. I think Electronic Arts, Apex Legends is the one that takes on Fortnite. That's the biggest person in the room that should be bought on this. It's up 19 percent. It's an outperformer, not a laggard. The others are laggards. Yeah, Electronic Arts, certainly uh, a pick of mine on the CNBC Power Lunch stock draft. But, but, so why was that? Because the Apex Legends is actually, uh, you're finally getting numbers. You're finally actually getting some expectation that the fourth quarter for these guys is going to be very strong at 19 times. This is a $30 billion company, and we often talk about the M&A d- dynamic here. It's hard to ignore um, the entertainment value and how these guys could be a great match for one of the big players we talk about all the time. I'm not saying that's the reason to own it. In fact, the valuation to me for this kind of growth, which has been stagnant of late, but I think is picking up again. All right, coming up, the pot stock sinking across the board. What sent the sector up in smoke? Our cannabis king is here. He'll weigh in when Fast Money returns. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to Fast Money. Cannabis stocks taking on the chin today as some of the biggest pot players get hit. So, Tim, what's, what's going on here? Well, I think, first of all, think about the April that the industry had. You had a number of these deals we highlighted four of them yesterday on the show, you've had a dynamic where we, we really have had this fresh round of market acceleration. I think, look, a little whiff of a slightly more hawkish Fed, what, what asset classes are going to get hit the most? It's going to certainly be um, you know, higher risk, higher return places. There's no question that it was a good time for people to take some money off the table in cannabis land. There's a couple of downgrades, um, and, and I think you know, that's, that's really the trade here. This is not about trading this stuff week to week, although um, the day traders love this sector because of the volatility, and they will continue to. All right. Well, our next guest says High Times is to thank for helping to take marijuana mainstream. The magazine has been running for 45 years as cannabis celebrities such as Bob Marley, Willie Nelson, Cheech and Chong and others have graced the dope cover throughout the year. So are they responsible for the reefer revolution? Let's bring in Craig Fox, CEO of High Times Holdings. Craig, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. You sent over some really interesting covers uh, of marijuana through the ages. What do you think was the tipping point in terms of getting states to push ahead with legalization on the state level? What, what was the change? Was it a matter of marketing the plant? Medical marijuana seems to be 
a real turning point, for instance, the acceptance of that phrase? Yeah, I, I think medical marijuana had a lot to do with it. And I think if you think of the, the children that are out there, the veterans that are coming home, um, just anyone that's, that's ill and traditional medicines that aren't working for, it is amazing what, what can happen when you use cannabinoids, not just THC, but CBD and some of the lesser known cannabinoids as well. Have you seen a pickup in interest in, in reading High Times? And forgive me, I don't know if, if High Times has an actual hard, co- we hard still copy. You didn't have a subscription at Harvard, Mel? No? Come on. High Times still do. You still do? Okay. So do people really do people want to read about cannabis? I think that they do, but we don't think of it really in terms of the physical magazine. There's so many other ways that we interact with people. You know, our social engagement is over 11 million people a month. We have another 22 or 24 million people uniquely a year coming to us. Plus we have events, we have trade shows. So there's lots of ways that people are connecting and learning about cannabis through high times. So talk about the Cannabis Club, Cannabis Cup, which is certainly a, a, uh, a seminal event, certainly for the industry, but for you guys, biggest numbers ever. Um, and how do you monetize this brand? You're, you're a lifestyle play. Uh, we know some of the names we've talked about on the show many times, it's about developing brands. I would argue you have one of the greatest brands in cannabis. I would argue we have the only brand in cannabis. We're the only brand that you can go to Lisbon, Portugal, you can go to Colombia or New York City and ask about high times and they're going to know it's cannabis. I don't think there's any other brand globally that can do that. And our cannabis cups are the gold standard. I mean, winning a cannabis cup defines you as the best. Whatever the category is, it's what people want to win and we monetize that. Um, we've got brands that come in and want to participate in that. We've got sponsors that want to be a part of that. And we have people that want to come and watch and be a part of that social engagement. So Tim mentioned something interesting, that you want to be a lifestyle brand. In high times, is very recognizable. So do you, do you see um, Playboy as being a sort of template where they license their very well-known brand to a lot of different products? So you could have a Playboy branded club, maybe a High Times related cannabis cafe or a High Times related pre-roll joint. I mean, I don't know where, where this could, could yeah, go. I think, all the, I think everything is an opportunity for us right now. The reason why you currently don't see cannabis clubs or dispensaries or lounges or hardware or software anywhere in the world is it wasn't legal before. Um, but now it is, and but they're opening is, them right. in, in California, for instance. West Hollywood has some opening up. Correct. And I, and I think over the next maybe 18 to 24 months, I think the globe, globally it's going to open up, and you're going to see High Times branded um, products, lounges, dispensaries, literally across the globe. Do you want an IPO? Well, we're technically already a public company. We, you know, we raise money through a, regula- uh, a reggae offering. Mm-hmm. We chose to do that because High Times has always been about the people, and we wanted regular investors to have the opportunity to invest with us. We are, um, while that's still open, we're really focused on an institutional round right now, and I can't talk, obviously talk more about that. We'll be closing it shortly. Craig, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Craig thank Fox you for having me. High Times. Up next, Final Trades. Uh, welcome back. Quick programming note, don't miss Eamon Javers' interview with Vice President Mike Pence. That's tomorrow, talking trade in the jobs report. That'll be 9.45 a.m. on Squawk on the Street. Time now for the final trade. Around the horn we go. Tim. So it hasn't been the disruption trade for the last couple of years that we were talking about, well, two years ago, but electronic arts and gaming continue to be a place where you want to be investing at these valuations, electronic arts. Grasso. Westrock, WRK. I bought it yesterday. It's been under pressure for quite some time. It's about ready to turn the corner. WRK. Yes, talking about content, content. CBS, a little bit light on earnings today, but I don't think that is the story at all. I like the valuation here, and I do think there is likely a merger in the works. CBS. Dan? Yeah, Intel, if you liked it back in February at 50, you'd probably like it back here again, so I think it's a good level. All right, that does for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Jim Cramer, Mad Money, up next. Yeah. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.